back in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the match he did the monster match the monster match it was a graveyard happy halloween everybody this is a special edition of the mocking cast to commemorate Many, many things, not the least of which is, of course, Halloween, which is a tradition whose origins stretch back over a thousand years, back to the British Isles, where a common custom of Christians was to come together on the eve of the feasts of All Hallows' Day or All Saints' Day to ask for God's blessing and protection from evil in the world. Oftentimes they would dress in costumes of saints or evil spirits and act out the battle between good and evil around bonfires. So that is the source of the modern observance of Halloween. Just in case you were wondering, it's also the 499th anniversary of the Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther wrote, to the Archbishop of Mainz and Magdeburg protesting against the sale of indulgences. Luther certainly had no idea how wide-reaching the influence of that little document would be. He certainly didn't think it was going to inspire an organization called Mockingbird, nor a podcast called The Mockingcast. But indeed, one year ago, yesterday, The Mockingcast was launched. The day before Halloween... The day before Reformation Day, we embarked on our podcasting adventure. One year later, it has been a really fun ride. In it, you'll hear briefly from David Zoll, our founder, Sarah Condit, and myself. Then, we're rejoined on the podcast by Paul Zoll and Duo Dickinson, the dynamic duo. Well, duo's dynamic in his own right, but they're a dynamic duo talking about the insights of the Reformation and why they're relevant today. Not the least of which is that when you think you're a monster and you meet the acceptance that comes in God's grace, you can get up and dance and do the monster mash because there is hope for us all on our most monstrous days. Thanks be to God. Happy anniversary to us. Happy anniversary to us. Happy anniversary, dear Mockingcast. Gang, do you realize we've been at this for a year? Mm-hmm. Crazy. Has it really been that long? I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess it's it's been, it's. I can't remember what life was like before the Mockingcast. Actually, yes, I can. But it was a much poorer and uh, less exciting place, especially. Less uh, impersonations, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's you know, it's funny that like when I asked you, David, about doing this, like I was doing a podcast with my buddy Bill, and I just I thought it was fun to do this kind of stuff, and then the ball got rolling, and then I remember a couple weeks in, as you and I were just dialoguing about another weekends, and then you told me to have Sarah on, and that was a great conversation, and we had Sarah back on, and then I felt like I feel like we're a year old, but not really, because I feel like our real birthday. Like if you're actually kind of charting it, like 
you know, I look at the podcast as uh, BS and AS, like before Sarah and oh, after Sarah. Scott. So on February twenty sixth, so full of it. Twenty sixteen. What's BS? I'm not full of it because <laughs> I, I was in the BS era before. But so after, yeah, after twenty February twenty sixth, twenty sixteen is when we really. But we were we were like the prophets in the Old Testament who saw types and shadows <laughs> until you came. I agree. So, I actually, mm. for once, Scott's flattery is not too much. I, I agree. I, I feel like it, it really began once we figured that part out. But I mean, let me say uh, a huge thank you both to you, Sarah, but especially to Scott. Yeah, be, absolutely. Be, I don't think people realize how hard he works on this and how, uh, how he little he got, he didn't get paid anything uh, when we started for the first, you know, three or four months. So this is a labor of love. I'm sure people can tell. And from everything people say to me, uh, that seems to come across. But Scott Jones, you have been a gift to this organization and to me personally. And I won't speak for Sarah, but, um, I, I really do feel uh, that that should be said. Yeah, I, I have a lot of gratitude to you for the podcast. And I have to say, I mean, I was even more thankful for you the other night when I was uh, standing around with a bunch of clergy from the Diocese of Texas drinking whiskey. And there may have been a few cigarettes. And, uh, one, of Name them names. St- and one of them started to make fun of my husband for his cargo shorts. And that's <laughs> when I knew that we have some <laughs> listeners. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Poor Josh. Poor Josh. He's the other person to be thanked here. He had no idea what they were talking about, which was like the best part. Sarah, if I can do anything for the sake of Christ and his kingdom in this world, if it would be to rid them of Josh's cargo shorts, I will feel like I I, I imagine Jesus saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant, as he takes them and throws them into the embers of the fire of hell. Very funny. No, I'm very grateful to you. And Scott does so much work on this, and it's I mean, incredible. If, you, if you think of the amount of like little running gags we've been able to conjure up, even in the last six months, and, and I'm not just talking about the cargo shorts thing, but you know, um, Scott's tank tops, I believe, was a, was a little meme for a little bit. We've had Absolutely. Jesse Ven- Jesse Ventura on the show, the irrepressible governor, <laughs> and um, the, I think I, I can't imagine what we're going to be able to come up with in the next year. I look forward to it. I also know that we've got some awesome guests planned. And that's something I'm very excited about. But Scott, are we allowed to tell anyone? Yeah, we can tell anybody anything we want. Well, what do you want? Who who, who are you most excited that we have lined up? We have Tony Hale is going to be coming on. We have... Amazing. Um, Buster, Buster Bluth. Mm-hmm. We have Robert Jensen coming Ooh. on. Uh, who is, for my money, the best American theologian since Jonathan Edwards. Absolutely. We have, I mean, we have a lot of people. And, and just tomorrow, I mean, we have, I could go on and on, but tomorrow or today, well, this is all kind of, we'll wrap into one envelope of reformation, rapport, and conversation. But you'll, tomorrow, our guests will hear in a moment a conversation that the animating force of the animating force, uh, Paul Zoll, duo Dickinson I had. So we talked about the meaning of the Reformation then and now. And mm. it was it's St. George's Church, and we had a great time doing it. And yeah, I think the next year is going to be excellent. And I, Sarah, you said something a couple weeks ago, I think via email, uh, which is all stored on my private server. No, just kidding. <laughs> I, use, I use Gmail. So everybody, the Mockingcast, like, they said that Hillary Clinton would have been safer if she used Gmail. 
just uh, anybody that's concerned about a North Korean attack or some like group of semi-Pelagians wrecking our thing, uh, <laughs> we, we, we use Gmail. All communication is through Gmail. So we are secure. No, but you said something about how sometimes you forget that it's, it's not just a conversation among three friends and we are friends. Mm-hmm. And it, that's part of the beautiful nature of the thing. It's, it doesn't feel like any work at all uh, most of the time. So, and I thank you guys for that so much. And and I can't tell you how many people have told me how much they enjoy you all and our connection and conversation. And so I think I'm grateful to our listeners and Mockingbird supporters and readers and to you both for making that possible and making it fun. I'm I'm waiting for someone out there. Maybe there's someone in Silicon Valley who's listening that can actually make an animated version of me animating the zeitgeist. I think that that would be, I feel like we'd really have made it if there'd be an animated, animated force of the zeitgeist. <laughs> and then you, you could have like Scott Pittsburgh 10, you know, right, right next to me. And then Sarah holding a pair of cargo shorts. If we could get that as our, you know, as our, as our banner, as our logo, then I think we really will have made it. Did you see the photo I posted today? Lindy took of me with my new iPhone 7 plus. I'm a Pittsburgh 10 five. <laughs> Are you? 10, maybe even an 11. I did see nice. it. Yeah, that was the Lindy filter. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It just morphed into like what she sees. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not the only anniversary though this week, right, Scott? Isn't uh, Sarah and uh, a certain gentleman ex- also celebrating an anniversary? Yes, we yeah. sang to them. Oh, I missed that. Was no, that you a- were there for it. Oh, <laughs> okay. Cut this part. <laughs> okay. Uh, anything you guys, you all want to say? Was- <laughs> I thought that was for the reformation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, it's interesting that so much of what we do is animated by other than not, you know, of course, by David, but by something that happened 499 years ago in Germany mm. and, and something that happened 2000 years ago in a backwater of the Roman Empire. And so mm. as much as like we're doing something high tech and we're in different states and we're proficient in Instagram filters and use all sorts of kitschy, sophisticated cosmopolitan words on our good days. Really, on some level, it's the old, old story, right? That we're mm. commemorating and trying to be remembered into. I mean, very much. that That's what the whole Mockingbird project is about. And, you know, these silly, self-aggrandizing descriptions aside, like that's that's really what we're talking about. I was reading, or I, we were, I was writing something about the Reformation the other day and came across that beautiful distillation of Martin Luther's from his... Uh, one of his, I think his table talks when he's remembering what was going on in 1516, actually right now, really, uh, not 1517, uh, before that all happened. And uh, th- there's that, that classic line, when I realized the law was one thing and the gospel another, I broke through and was free. And mm. I think that any freedom that people uh, pick up on or that they've hear uh, that they, they they smell or that they that they uh that maybe there's a shadow of it that's cast over over this podcast um i believe it it can be traced back to that truly liberating understanding of what of, of what god actually how he works in the world and what he makes of you and me in the midst of our totally backward and self-defeating tendencies to see the law by christ fulfilled to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty to choice Mm, yeah hat tip william cowper i feel like i I always say to people like when they ask me why 
<laughs> Cooper. <laughs> um, no, it's, you know, it's Cowper. It's C-O-W-P-E-R. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Cooper, but that doesn't matter. Uh, well, I'm just spelling. I'm, phonics was fun for me. Hash it out in the comments section, people. I, inter- I interrupted my, my friend, Sarah. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> no, it's cool. Yeah, I, I always say when people ask me, like, why I'm involved with Mockingbird, why I love Mockingbird, um, that it saved my life. But really, in so many ways... It feels like the Reformation saved my life and really the gospel of grace saved my life, right? The gospel saved my life. Um, But as I was coming to know Mockingbird and to read Mockingbird, I was in seminary and I feel like I've talked about this on here before, but seminary Reformation Day was always this very heated thing where um, you weren't supposed to like, you weren't supposed to like uh, the Reformation. You weren't supposed to like Reformation Day. And um, I, I'm, I, I never understood that. I love it so much. I love what is done to our church, and I and I um, love the the grace that that saved me because of it. So, amen to that. And I am looking forward to another year with you all, uh, living uh, by God's grace in light of it, infused by it. Hopefully, oh, no, imputed to it. We don't like infusion. No, an- animated by it. Duh. Animated by animation. <laughs> We're coming up with new theological Pick a lane. lingo all the time, right? <laughs> Gang, thanks so much. And everybody, you should know that we're doing this at like 9.30 at night on a Sunday. You'll hear it Monday, the 31st. But because these people live and die, you, the listener. We're missing Westworld. I paused it. Okay, okay. Thank you, friends. And I hope you all are encouraged by the reflection you will subsequently hear as you hear our voices fade into the proverbial sunset. Not as historic as the first time. But, well, it is because I'm here with Paul Zoll, the inimitable, the one, the only, uh, big, f- a big friend of the show and a big sh- show delight. I mean, a lot of fans on the show. And Duo Dickinson, his friend, former parishioner and architect extraordinaire, has just said he'd be very humble and bashful. He'd never say this on the air, but I'll say it. He's the best architect in this room. I hope so. Maybe even on the block. He's <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And we're also in the background here is David Peterson, our able production assistant, all the way up from Charlottesville, Virginia. So it is historic because the last time we were together in this room at lovely St. George's, we were Sands Peterson. Oh, yes, we were. Yes, we were. And we're here on a special episode of the Mockingcast. We usually come out on Fridays to discuss the contents of another weekend, and we usually have a guest we interview. But today is. Reformation Day, 499 years. So next year's the 500. We're scooping it to get on to get ahead on the 499. And it's also by fate or fortune or what have you. It is the one year anniversary of the Mockingcast. The first podcast we did was October 31st last year. Wow. Mm, Amazing. So I thought no better way to celebrate the Reformation and the first anniversary of the cast than with you two fine gentlemen. And 
I'd like to talk a little bit about the Reformation and what it means today. Paul, could you just like give us, uh, set the stage, as they say, for us? Um, Scott, the um, Reformation is uh, very much in my mind right now. I'm trying to understand it partly because I'm preaching here in this church and at Calvary on Sunday on Reformation Day, but I'm trying to understand it um, pastorally. I'm attempting to understand it in uh, gut-level, atomistic, individual terms um, rather than I've spent so many years uh, trying to understand it conceptually. You understand that the Reformation breakthrough is not about the printing press, and it's not about Henry VIII, and it's not about Frederick the Wise, and it's not about the Enlightenment. It's about an extraordinary theological once-off breakthrough that Martin Luther had in 1516 uh, by which he came to understand that the way to um, the way to describe the relationship between God and the human being was a relationship of grace rather than a performance, and this uh, distinction between grace and performance or law or stress or works is the dominant uh, picture of the Reformation breakthrough, and it's accurate, and it's the one that we all deeply treasure from stressful and uh, deeply defeated lives, defeated by uh, performance gone awry in most cases or if it goes well, self-righteousness. Um, we've seen the Reformation that way, but I want to take a little different crack at it just for a few minutes or so and then invite Duo uh, and yourself and uh, the, the audience really to come to, to think about this. My way of understanding the Reformation is a, a song by Yes that came out in 1971 one of their greatest songs, it was number four in 1971, called Long Distance Runaround. And uh, the Reformation was an attempt to get out of the long-distance runaround with God. They asked John Anderson, who wrote the song and sang it, what did you mean by long-distance runaround? And he said, I was taken to church as a child in England, and I wanted to know God. I wanted to see God, these are his exact words, as a non-threatening, compassionate entity. And I never got that message. And religion struck me at the time as a long-distance runaround. I was trying to bridge a long distance, and all I got was a runaround. That was how he put it. And I said, what a great way to put the Reformation. Mm. Now, I would say that the Reformation was really an extraordinarily vital um, um, throwing out of the net to uh, uh, traverse the distance between God and man uh, by means of a direct connection, a direct uh, coming together of absolute and complete union as opposed to uh, uh, to, to disenfranchisement, alienation, and uh, all the things that we associate with the guilty conscience. And this uh, attempt to bring together uh, the um, Word of God and the massive <clears throat> wonder of God with the human sorrowing sufferer was what the Reformation was an attempt to do. And Luther understood one thing he knew was, and I'm going to say two things. This is the first. One thing he knew was that it wasn't working. He was getting a long-distance runaround, which meant him go up 50 million steps here, do 18 million visitations on a relic there, and he desperately wanted what John Anderson of Yes wanted. He wanted a non-threatening, compassionate, non-judgmental entity, God, and he wasn't achieving or seeing or getting any link of it. So the Reformation was an attempt to answer that great question. Now, what Luther understood is that that, the only satisfactory answer to that question is unconditional forgiveness. The only way to erase the long-distance runaround or to go directly to the source was to encounter an entirely unconditional, unmediated, direct, and complete forgiveness that did not have to be re 
enacted or revivified moment to moment or day to day, which meant that everybody was going around, quote, with their, quote, hair on fire. I was accused recently of having my hair on fire about something. (laughs) And it's such a put down. Now, let me say what happens. When you don't believe that love in your life is unconditional or without judgment, you end up putting a false face on it. St. Paul said a veil sits between God and the human race because we are putting up a false front. I want to ask you, looking at your own inner heart, you probably would tell me what you're thinking. Oh, I've been doing this or that today. If I pressed you, you might tell me the second level of what you're thinking about. Well, I'm a little disappointed about that, or I'm worried about Hillary Clinton, or I'm worried about this or that. If I pressed you, you might go a little further and say, well, actually, I'm really worried about girls, or I'm really worried about my husband, or I'm really worried about my job. But you know what? You would never tell me what you were really thinking, because what you were really thinking could have to do with the deepest, darkest depression in the world. You could be contemplating suicide. You could be contemplating leaving your husband. You could be contemplating uh, throwing yourself off a bridge because your job is very, very tenuous. There are a million things that you could be contemplating, but you would never tell me because you would fear that if you told me, I would think the less of you. Well, that's the human condition. And but I, the longer I go in life, the more I realize how little people avouch about what they really are thinking, how little people actually let you in on their real concerns. Now, Luther realized this, and he realized the only way that there could be transit between man and God was by erasing completely and at one blow the veil of condemnation. And that was the Reformation breakthrough, Amonavi, which created this momentum that ended up making people say, oh my gosh, I'll say one final thing. Uh, Nicholas Ridley, the famous bishop who was later martyred in 15, what, you tell me, 15, 54, 55, he was martyred. When he read Martin Luther's Epistle to the Romans, It was expounded to him by Thomas Barnes in a little dormitory room one night. And he said, when I heard what Luther said about the unconditional grace of God, he said, my hair literally stood on end. Mm. And that created such a nuclear explosion inside Latimer and its colleague Ridley that they gave all to doing something wonderful. Sorry to go on, but that was my opening salvo. And what a salvo it was. Thank you, Paul. I think... uh didn't Yes get nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year? I hope so. There's a little trouble because there are two versions of Yes. They certainly yeah. ought to be. Yeah. I, if they aren't, they should be. Thank you certain. for saying that. It's interesting. As you were saying what you were saying, I just read this morning, early in the morning, they, one of the New York Times lead stories was so, the last in-depth interviews they did with Donald Trump before he ran for office. And one of the things that he said to the interviewer was, I don't like self-examination much. I might not like what I find there. Yeah. But that's, it's funny because isn't that where everybody lives? Yeah. Duo, you had a productive train wreck, by the way, here. <laughs> I got an email from you. you like, you, you were, you're prolific. Even commuting, you're prolific. Well, I think it bespeaks the uh, fear of self-discovery being manifest in manic activity. <laughs> It is, it is part of the, the devil's hands or the idle hands of the devil's play child, you know, or, or maybe Freud's playground. But I, I went at, at Paul's behest. I mean, this is a wonderful uh, confluence because at the Morgan Library right now is a really interesting exhibit about Martin Luther. And I had read the 95 articles at least 30, 40 years ago and thought this guy was amazing. Then they have them up there in this very sort of stark, simple presentation, white letters on a dark... Um, maroon background and 
because it, they're sort of stark and white and clean and not old timey or made to feel holy or in any way ancient. They're made to feel as if they were written today. You read them and everything Paul said, I am, I know is true. What got through to me was, I guess it's narcissistic was here is a pissed off dude. Here is a guy that said, this isn't the way I experience God. This isn't the way I relate to God. This isn't the way I want to deal with God through a Pope. I want to deal with God directly. And there shouldn't be any mitigation between that, no matter how holy anything is. I mean, when he said there shouldn't be one church, take all the money and build churches for everyone else. (laughs) I just, it just lit my fire. And I began to realize that the ideology is so compelling, but but there has to have been, like St. Paul, there had to have been a human associated this that was unrelenting, that was unrelenting and just went at it, hammer and tong, because the success of those 95 articles, the worldwide success of it, and it, it astonished me to read a little bit that said basically within two weeks, every single parish in in Germany had the 95 articles in two weeks. I mean, that's faster than the internet is today. It, 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 the truth is a hard thing to not have happen. And the truth of the corruption of the, the Catholic churches back then is just manifest. It's just known. It just was whether, you know, whether or not you're Catholic or not, you say, God, you know, they took some excesses in that church. And I think today, the reason why we're all sort of blown away by not knowing what to do or who to vote for half the time is the excesses of everything are writ so large to us that we're we're sort of in search of a Martin Luther. And unfortunately, you know, that can have, there can be false Luthers in the world, you know. I think we want somebody to come in and clean house. Like Lex Luthor. Well, Lex, I was pretty upfront. Yeah, I liked him. Yeah. Well, can I, uh, can I pursue that theme? Um, I, um, I was trying to find out this uh, week who actually said it, but I, I believe it was Kierkegaard, but it doesn't sound Kierkegaardian, <laughs> so I may be wrong. He said that Luther was an outstanding patient for Europe. He meant patient in the hospital patient. And what, what Luther, Luther was a man who, who, he was probably the first man in recorded history who was in touch with the unconscious. He was probably the first man oh, who really looked, with, because he constantly said, the story of my life is, why do I do what I don't want to do, right. and I don't do what I want to do? Which Paul, of course, understood at such a deep level, and Christ did. But Luther, for so many centuries, it was all superficial. What I do is who I am. And actually, that's not true. And so Luther's, you might, people say, oh, he was an erotic. Well, he was a, thank God he was an erotic, mm. because he understood how I experienced life. He realized that underneath the person that I present is two or three other people. What did George Herbert say? Oh, uh, didn't he say, I am myself each hour 10,000 times myself? Um, Luther understood that the human being is incredibly volatile and diverse within himself. And so he was able to see that this unconscious, this hugely catastrophic and roiling unconscious was, was always present. And therefore, his understanding of sin and human nature was instantly deepened. Now, what mm. happened and where I want to come in with Duo said, people know that deep down. People know that deep down. Um, Mary said this morning, fast, she said, you know, I had a disturbing dream last night. And I think to myself, a dream? What, what, what is a dream? You know, it's part, it says something about who you are, who I am. Yeah. And I thought about a dream. And um, the, the power of Luther got those theses distributed because everyone realized in, instinctively that he was onto something, that they'd been living with a long distance runaround. 
I mean, John Anderson, he wrote about 20 of the best songs ever written in rock and roll <laughs> as a result of trying to resolve the long-distance runaround, not to mention Jethro Tull, for crying out yes. loud. Let's hear it for Jethro Tull. But what I'm trying to say is that that, that incredible electricity that Luther touched had to do with, with where people really live. And, you know, it's not, just, it's not just about theology or politics. You know, in aesthetics, all aesthetics, the, the classical aesthetics, the idea of, of what is genuine and what is artifice, what, what is exploratory and what is affect, that, that drives every non, um, non-subsistence aspect of our characters. In other words, we have to work to get money, to live, to have heat, to do all those kind of things. Beyond the satisfaction of the, of this needs of survival, every one of us is unrelentingly aware of the unanswered questions that are all around us. Some of them are very deep and some of them are very superficial. But the truth is that, you know, in my profession, architecture, it, it takes on all the tenets of a Catholic and a Protestant mindset where the Catholic church right now is inordinately, hugely, overarchingly powerful. And the Protestants in the room, which, which are a meek group of, of odd people, um, cower before unrelenting judgment that is that is really absolute that's in a time of incredibly fractured media where you think there would be that the divergent voices would have much more weight that there the, you could actually have something like the the 95 theses and architecture sort of happen but it doesn't because people right now fear is you're talking about architecture architecture right now fear of looking like a fool is greater than the pride in bucking the system that's so powerful and the truth is that that in every human endeavor there's always the establishment and there's always the dis- disestablishment and and the most compelling arguments as to why Donald Trump is so powerful is not just that he is the disruptor but that she is al- almost the metastasization of the of the establishment she's almost like the most inert fully formed product like the the great 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 grandchildren of the child of the system embedded in essentially talking politically correctly all the time and never never offending believing that there are larger solutions and that is very comforting the fact that she's a professional smart engaged person but it's also very daunting if you want to get to things that are more part of your day-to-day life Oh, I think that is, I think we're right on the thumb of both the Reformation and what's currently Bingo. going on in our country. Bingo. It's interesting. Over the past year, we've had a lot of guests who are either not Christians or not religious. And when we talk about these themes of unconditional love and utterly gratuitous mercy that is essential if we're going to survive in this world, invariably, uh, you know, Leah Leibowitz, a friend and colleague and dear brother, uh, Jewish writer and intellect and just uh, a, a behemoth, the polymath of a person. But he just, he explained the uniqueness of Christianity in as a way a, that most as Christians a can, as, as a, a Jew. Jew. Yeah. And all about acceptance and, and, and feeling as a Jew, he doesn't have this, he has, he has, he has chosenness without, without this, this, this sense of God's unilateral acceptance and forgiveness. Over the next year, again, we're scooping it, 499, baby. But next year is the 500th anniversary in 1517. I, the, there'll be a lot of talk about Luther, but it seems like the mainline church will be indifferent in general. Like this, this is kind of passe in a lot of mainline circles. And among the evangelicals, you have a lot of pro- progressive evangelicals who seem to want to kind of cash in that inheritance. And then you have some conservative evangelicals that almost make a theology not of the cross like Luther, but a theology about the cross that becomes a theology of glory. Mm. See, <laughs> so why are there so few pockets in the church today that, you know, that we have this 
treasure that I think it's it is what the world is yearning for in, in every pocket. It, you know, and why do you think it's so hid under a bushel? Well, that is a question that um, I've almost stopped asking because I'm so upset. When I think about it, I see the Christian church as one massive lost opportunity in, I don't want to say every case, of course there are exceptions, but in almost every case that I bump in against, I find that the true treasure that we're talking about, the dynamite, but that changes lives for the better, for our welfare, is is uh, um, distorted or not even known about. And um, I mean, I could go on and on and on about that, but I'm just struck that the the power of if, if I often say to Christian people who are evangelicals, if you really believed that Christ died for sinners, if you really believed that we are actually really loved by God in our totality, the potential for your entire life is unbelievable. Yeah, and you know what, Paul? Yeah, you know what, Paul? That's why it's terrifying. Say, say more. That, is why, it's that is why it's terrifying. Because the truth is the hardest thing in the world to, to accept is the fact that you'd be that good a person that you wouldn't have something that you hated in yourself. You, you really want to have comfort in the fact that you can't be perfect. And the fact that, that people make this, I think, un, to me, illogical, unreasonable, but natural connection between the perfect and everything else. And, and the fact that you could have perfect acceptance in and be incredibly flawed and have real issues and not be a good person on many levels, but actually be perfectly accepting. That's a hard pill to swallow. You want to be able to think about yourself as a complicated thing, person that does many bad things. And part of the bad things that you do as a person is you judge other people and you find yourself by rejecting other people. And so, and so the finding yourself by rejecting other people is so much easier than to say, I may suck, he may suck, but the truth is there's got to be stuff in him that I love. Um, that l- Let me make two comments about that. That is a brilliant point. Um, I was preaching this message at Grace Church uh, in 1980, something like that, and the headmaster of Grace Church School, who's a man I respect very, very much, he's still with us, um, and he, a very sophisticated man, uh, and a man of, who I was in some awe of, and he said, you have to understand, people hate what you're saying. He said, I hate what you're saying. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you are telling me something I don't want to hear about myself. I can't tell you how much I I hate you when you say that God is completely compassionate towards your flaws. Uh, that that I he, and that was extraordinary. And I that was the first thing I, I learned. But then I realized that um, that is the absolute core of it. That what people and that's why you never that when I want to go back to that point about people never telling you where they really are. If someone, if your wife or your husband or your child or your very best friend can actually tell you. Eighty percent of where they're really coming from at every given any given point, the 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 electric, the the nuclear power of that confession, and I don't mean it formally, of that self disclosure is beyond anything you could imagine. Um, and uh, before we finish, I do want to talk about a movie that I'm thinking about, but not <laughs> at this moment. But that's fascinating, the question that Scott raises. Why is the church, and the liberal church, right. is just as bad, bad about it as the conservative church? Um, I find people are furious about it on the left, and they're furious about it on the right. And it has, in a way, made me often think, you know, golly, maybe we shouldn't have a church. I mean, maybe we should all join AA, you know? I mean, maybe, you know, we need to be a fellowship of fellows 
sufferers without right. a ministry. But that seems extreme. People want to be led, right? People want to people want to have a, a they want to have faith in something that knows more than they do. They want to hook their hook their effort to something they believe has a greater importance than their own petty ability to see what's right and wrong. They want to go beyond themselves. It's it's part of why you know we we don't all binge watch and and sit on the couch. I, I do too. I do a lot. Of I well, that's your generation, I'm sure. But but the truth is, my version of binge watching and sitting on the couch is is essentially watching, you know, uh, watching Chopped on TV. So there's no really there's, there's no difference between human beings generationally. I do think the hardest thing in the world is both and. I think the hardest thing in the world real is both and real both not and. conceptual both and not real to, both and the idea that essentially the word that I miss the most in my you know, cradle Episcopalian upbringing is the word Protestant. It's been evaporated. The idea that you could be faithful and protest, that you can have the same basic, essential, fundamental belief that Christ died to save everyone, but protest the way people interpret that for other people. And what is nice is that I think the Episcopal Church has grown to a place, I hope, where at least there is tolerance for a wide range of ways to connect to God versus essentially the the sad to me hegemony of you know the right to semi-Catholic aspect. I do th- see in Connecticut anyway <laughs> very Anglo-Catholic churches, and I see very right three churches, and I see a, the place where I go, which is everything. It's everything. The methodology only becomes tyrannical when it is one-dimensional as it was for Luther with the Pope. Yes. If there if there's one gigantic iceberg of truth and you're, you know, coming at it in a little you know, a little life raft, it's pretty tough. If there are lots of medium-sized icebergs floating around, it's kind of a party. So I I I get Luther in a very different way I think that a theologian does. I really when I see his face, this face of you know, what the hell are you doing? He did not sugarcoat his portraits. They were angry, intelligent faces of, we have to change stuff. I, 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 can, I, can I take it one, um, uh, just apply it, what you're saying, uh, one further, the, theologize for a moment. When the Protestants and Catholics in Germany about eight years ago uh, were trying to come together with an ecumenical statement, they always flub on one point. And this is, these are wonderful Roman Catholics, and these are excellent Lutherans. These are fine people. You'd enjoy having dinner with them. These are the highest people of, in their side, and I knew a lot of the Protestants. But my, some of them, they couldn't sign the final conquered dot, about a hundred of the Lutherans refused to sign, and a few of them were jerks, but most of them were good men. Why did they not sign it? Because the Catholic Church could not dogmatically assent to the to the corollary theology of Martin Luther that's called simul justus et peccator, which is the Latin word for I am justified by God, i.e. loved by God, and a sinner at the same time. Because it, conceptually, they couldn't see how you could be justified and also a sinner. You're either a sinner or you're justified. Now, my way of translating that is loved and human. Right. Loved and human. But the Protestants said, this is the cash value, to use the academic phrase. This is where the, the point of the stylus hits the vellum right. in human. I have to be the person who I am completely and accepted as I am. And, of course, in that both and... Uh, again, something thermonuclear happens, which means creativity. 
creativity gets unleashed. Um, I've got to just uh, quickly say that in the movie that I'm focused on right now from 1976 (laughs) called Lifeguard, which you have got to see. Oh, I saw Lifeguard. Lifeguard. It's with Sam Elliott years ago. Great mustache. Yeah, the great mustache. That's the movie. He, everybody is trying to tell this 31-year-old lifeguard that he has to go and get a job, a quote, real job. And he has a job, but they say you're wasting your life being a 31-year-old lifeguard. But he loves what he does. And everybody, including his true love, tells him. She even says, I won't marry you until you stop being a lifeguard and start selling Porsches. And at the end, he does the most counterintuitive thing. He says, I'm sorry, I have to stay a lifeguard. And he's the, the girl that rejects him for it. All his buddies think he's crazy. But you know what's going to happen? Because he's allowed himself. He's, he said, I am a lifeguard. He is himself. And he's accepted himself. God doesn't enter into it, but ultimately it's God. You know, you know what's going to happen. He's going to end up becoming a coach. Or he's right. going to end up becoming the, the supervisor for beaches for the county. Right. Or he's going to end up becoming a, a, a wonderful YMCA teaching kids right. how to swim. He will have a wonderful life because he has accepted that he deep down wants to be a lifeguard. Now, that's Simulius is at Picotter, but the world says, no way. Well, I can tell you it's worse now because it used to be the world would say that. You know, the, for the greatest generation had... had the greatest anticipation for its boomer offspring. They really wanted them to do all these things that were better than what they do. Don't be a lifeguard via sell Porsches. It's worse because the boomers that grew up doing the things that the lifeguard did, and lifeguard was essentially a boomer, 31 in 1970, whatever, he's a boomer. 76. Essentially, we now have taken... And I will say my wife and I easily could could have gone way over to the dark side of knowing, and I put that in quotes, knowing exactly what our children, quote unquote, should do, where they should go to school, what is the what is the right thing to do. And when I talk to all of my brethren and sistren in, in boomerdom, we talk about our children. There are really two types of, there really are two types of parents. There's one type of parent which essentially leads with everything being perfect. My son is woofing in, in Hawaii and, and it's really great because he gets to harvest pineapples, meaning he smoked too much dope at Haverford and now he can't get a job. <laughs> um, and, and then the other ones are people that, that, have a sense of humor about their children and will say to them, well, you know, like I would say before they got jobs, well, my kids have graduated from grad school. They don't have a job. One has a girlfriend, one doesn't. So life goes on and it's, you know, it's, it's all always a mixed bag and you don't present it as the best kid ever. <laughs> so, so my sense is that, that the lifeguard was, was looking at a societal norm. I think it's harder when all of these millennial kids are looking at a parental norm. I completely agree with that. And they get crushed into this corner and it becomes then everything the parents do, whether it's going to church or whether it's everything, becomes part of the great wave of rejection of of processing that the parents have spent their entire... I mean, I don't know about you, Scott, but I would bet that your parents probably scheduled you every minute of every day from the time you were three years old and to the time you went away to college. They didn't. I was totally... You were blessed. I, was, I don't know if I was blessed, <laughs> but that was... That was misery comes in many forms. There you are. Mentally. (laughs) But I will tell you, we scheduled every minute of our children's lives from the moment they could be scheduled until the moment they You see, this is called law. Bingo. This is what Luther... Now, I've spent a lot of time talking about that in my ministry, but that's what it is. And you end up destroying freedom. It destroys freedom. Um, uh, So, absolutely. Absolutely. You pointed something something out in your book, The First Christian, that when I read it, I remember reading it and I was thinking, well, I've never heard this before, but certainly I have heard this before, but I haven't. You said that John the Baptist came 
preaching not yet but soon like classic apocalyptic kind of preacher you see them probably mm-hmm. and, yep. you know we could probably find one in union right square now. close by yeah and you said jesus and, and john the baptist was not unique among first century apocalyptic jews i mean he had that but you said jesus took that and turned it around to not already and not yet and that that opens up the space for the Pauline understanding of grace. It it, it brings up the, sp- the the space for at the same time sinner and saint that something really is is here, and yet there's something on the horizon. And what I took from that was wow, what Luther. A lot of times we put we pit sort of this Reformation doctrine of grace or something over against the people that are concerned about the kingdom. But it seems like when Jesus proclaims the kingdom, it's exactly this hope. That 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 there is a hope, and yet one that it's not not yet, but soon. But it's already here, and yet there's hope on the horizon. Um, yes, I'm I'm trying. To, I I I wrote that, and I believe it. But I wanted to say that the um, the where we're we're missing. I can we, prove it. It's on my Kindle. Well, I believe you. I'm uh, <laughs> uh, read between the lines. But the um, <laughs> but what I want to say is that the Luther said that this can happen. Now, yes, with the person that you are now, whatever your baggage is, you're 50, you're 60, you're 30, you're 20, whatever you bring to the equation, this is for you now. And that's what Jesus said, the kingdom, you know, now is the time. Uh, now, of course, there's a future, you know, there is a future out there. But I right now, I, what I crave is being completely... Um, loved, accepted. These words are cliches, but they're true cliches. I crave a relationship of being completely affirmed as the person that I actually am with all my particular, and we all have, what all my particular idiosyncrasies and nutty things are, that's, and well as my sins, as well as my selfishness, as well as all the different things that I have, I need to know that all of it is is all right in specific terms, and I feel that the church. So that's why AA is so great because you have to be very concrete. You yeah. have to be very concrete about it. So I just want to. Um, I want to. I mean, even Luther. You know, Simeon Zoll says a wonderful thing that Luther's entire theology was one of the greatest works of art ever in the history of the world. It was this vast production of a work of art, this synthesis of creativity and the Holy Spirit. However, he was also unbelievably polemic and edipal. He was profoundly edipal. He was just bang, bang, bang. And he died that way, although he had a tender side. Well, he had to know that God accepted him, even in his being a, a difficult, challenging person. I also thought that's true with St. Paul, correct? I mean, St. Paul I'm was the chief a, of sinners, he was, said. Was, the, was the, a real mother. I won't use the second aspect of that. And I got the, I got the impression that, um, looking at Luther an hour or two ago, that he was also a mother. He was, he was not to be trifled, did not suffer fools gladly. And at the same time, he realized that that was not great. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just not he wasn't great. proud of that. He was not proud of it. This is not, you know, and, and to be honest, you know, architects, me in particular, are very good at feeling like they know what the truth is because they're directing things, they're designing things, they're making things happen in a way that they know, quote unquote, know is the to the ultimate better good of the building, which means the building and the family and culture and the world. But at the same time, if you're sentient, which a lot of architects are not, you know that you've made any number of mistakes before. You could be making a mistake now and that the the definition of a good architect is turning a screw up into a feature. And so that when you have this sense that, that, that you're doing stuff that's never been done before, 
you have to have faith in something. And the faith in something for architects, the default is to the ego for the ones that are not very good. And the ones that are good, it's to faith that there is an answer that will reveal itself because you, there are good, there is good and evil in the world and you can help find it if you can get out of the way. The problem is people have to get out of the way of the judgments that hold them, hold them away from this thing, which is true, which is, I believe that every person I meet is no better than myself. Mm. If I believe that, then the world's a pretty great place. Mm. Paul, I remember you. Wonderful duo. Wonderful. Yeah. I remember seeing on YouTube, a series of talks you gave in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And for our listeners, if you're in, if you see Paul's all in a cast, a black cassock with cl- like clergy tabs, you've got the right series in a kind of, you know, classroom adult forum setting. And it, first off, in that series of talks, you gave the best definition I think I've ever heard of the Reformation because you said, you know, people have been saying, Paul, we love your message. We love your message, but we're older and we're dealing with the ultimate, but ultimate things of life. But this is not a message for young people. Young people will not flock to this because it's dark. And we know that life is dark. But we can, And you said, I remember you said, look, the Reformation was started by young guys who were split off from themselves and couldn't find themselves and couldn't find the love of God and incredibly split off. And that's where they discovered this message in preaching. And the good news is if you get it while you're young, you can live, you can die and then live posthumously. Well, that, can I say something about that? They, um, they said uh, to the Buddha, I'm not a Buddhist, obviously, but they said, uh, you should be having a good time. Why are you getting so ascetic and preaching when you're only 30? And he said, you don't understand. I've gotten this message when I'm 30. I now have 40 years in which I can present this message. Right. And what a great thing. Um, what I was referring to there also is that it's, this is a message for young people, and it's a message that young people adore because young people, if I, that sounds so condescending, but people who are young just like me are very gut level. We, my, me, the, the young Paul was looking feverishly and, and like uh, looking for the jugular all the time when I was 19. Look at the first album by The Pretenders. I mean, will you look at the first album by The Pretenders? <laughs> it is, whenever you want to see real inspiration, look at the first album of uh, 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 what's that? Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick, I don't think much of, but their first album live in rockin'. Japan. Are you out of your mind? Jethro Tell, obviously, yes. These guys were 22. Chrissy Hind is now, I find, quite difficult, but her uh, uh, cash in pocket, brass in pocket, I mean, are you out of your mind? These people were so in touch with the jugular of human life, as Luther was, as I hope I am in my own little way, but I'm not young anymore, but I feel that the uh, the message of of total... Um, uh, the need of everybody to be accepted at their deepest, darkest place is something for eight, eight-year-olds, for that matter. Well, there is this, there is this reality in the human biology, and, I, and I've done a million coaches. I've been a coach. I yeah. um, have kids that have done music and known any number of musical teachers. What you get when you're young stays what you get when you're later is layered on what you got when you were young. The fundamental rhythms and and values and re- memories of who you were really happen when you begin to dissociate yourself from your parents, 9, 10, 11, and they kind of close off before you become parents, 20, 25. You know, the, the sadness is that, you know, that I'm getting old enough that there's, you know, 40s and 50th anniversaries are happening in, 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 different, in different things. And there are people that I know that literally do believe the best years of their lives were in when they were 16, 18, 20, 25. That's sad 
Because the truth is, it's not that they're the best years of your life. They're the ones that, they're the years that formed you and what you do after yeah, that's That's important. exactly right. And I, and I was just trying to sort of transmogrify what you're saying about rock into classical music. And there's always a Mozart. There's always, you know, there's always a Haydn. There are always these, these enfants terribles, you know, incredibly gifted kids. But you also have Brahms and you also have Verdi. Bach and Verdi. So my take is the hardest thing for humans to deal with is that there are no excuses. The fact that, you know, I'm too old to do this, that's just crap. The fact that I'm too young to do this, well, that's also just crap. <laughs> the fact is, if you if it's in front of you, do it. Do it. There's there's Nothing should stop the right thing from happening if you know it's right. And the the absolute projectile aspect of Martin Luther, from what I was reading, that's he nice. was just like, let me at this now. You know, I, I want to say, I'm, I do a lot of writing, and I'm constantly aware at this point in my life, when I write something... What if so-and-so read it? Yes. And it's a problem. It's a terror. When I was 18, it didn't matter. I wrote what I wrote, and that was that. It was good and bad, depending. Right. But today, I find I'm constantly having these accusatory voices that are preventing me from saying creatively what I really want to express. Do you find that, Dua? Actually, uh, yes. And the, 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 the most humiliating aspect of that was I was, uh, because I'm old, I uh, was nominated this year to be a, a, a fellow in the AIA and uh, that's very late in life because I've only been a member for 10 years. So when you are that's nomi- the What's that? The American Institute of the Architects? Architects. Yeah, I, I was it, hoping it was a clandestine organization. It is. It is essentially what I made me almost not do it was they said, oh, yeah, you go down to D.C. and you, you have to wear a robe when they in, they invest you. Really? Is it slimming? What color is it? I said, can I wear my draperies uh, like like a very famous architect did in the 19th century because he gotten too fat to wear his uh, black tie and tails? But what uh, happened in well, your mind? It, it, well, it, it, I was hoping to wear draperies and they said no. But um, but but it was H.H. H. Richardson, by the way, who died when he was only 53, but he got really fat. But the, the, the weird thing was that in doing this application, not only do you have to get seven uh, seven famous people to nominate you, you also have to to write to present writings that you've done and also work that you've done. So, because I'm an egomaniac, I just took the best things I thought that I'd done over 25 years, and I edited them and I just threw them at them, and then I hit send, and then I reread them. So, in the application to get fellowship in the AIA, I wrote things like the AIA is remarkably unresponsive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had all this stuff about the AA that, that's saying it kind of sucked. And that was in my application to be a fellow in the AA. So yeah. sometimes you write things that you regret. When you uh, well, it. fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I agree. I hear that. But I just think the, the essence why well, my point about rock and roll and yours is ultimately, and the point about the gospel is, if you can actually be your unchained melody, let's talk about yeah, unchained right. melody. And it really is true. We have so many reasons why we are not able to express what we really have within us. And as a result, you end up getting cramped and cramped and cramped. Frank Lake in that section in Clinical Theology, big thousand page book. I, I, he has great this, book. It's amazing. I, he's a great psychiatrist. And he has that section on sleep disorders. And he talks about the, the difference in sleep if you learn developmentally zero to two, that acceptance is a gift, that your whole self with all your libidinal rage, frustration is accepted as a gift versus if you learn that oh. acceptance is a reward. And he has this great line how you can't even when you sleep, you can't dream properly because you can't free associate. He says the censure stands guard. The, the, you, the even mon- in your sleep. Yeah, that the monster either chases you or the censure stands guard so the monster can run. But unlike the, the one who is free indeed, it gets, where, where the monster gets slain. And, they're, and it's just amazing. And you're talking about work. And, and but when you were talking about the censorious nature of, well, should I write that? It just sounds so much like what Lake talks about there. 
I get so nervous about certain things that I'm writing uh, that I that I put them in code. I frequently, actually, literally have code. I put I'll use like people did in old diaries. You know, I'll talk about Bonaparte and I'll put B. You know what I mean? Uh, or I'll, I'll have a little code because I'm so concerned. And I, of course, I understand why that is. I don't want to offend somebody that right. might do me dirt, but it's it's not good. It, it's and, and grace, the whole power of grace, and that's why when you're in a, a marriage, which is uh, uh, which is characterized by grace, or you have a relationship with your dad or somebody, it is so unusual. It happens about twice in a lifetime if you're lucky. It's one of the reasons why old men almost always marry their nurses, unless they're already married, because somebody's cleaning them up, and, and the whole package is being presented. Well, it all comes down, I mean, a lot of it comes down, whether it's the writing or whether it's the inability to say what you feel or know or even want to know what you feel. It all comes down to the, to the most primal human reality, which is the most primal animal reality, which is fear. Yeah, it's essentially fear. You're afraid of what you can't control. You're afraid of what might end you. So the idea of being afraid is the thing that makes something like Luther's lack of fear transcendent. I agree. It's transcendent. Perfect love drives out fear, says the apostle John. This has been wonderful. And it's, you know, I heard George Hunzinger think, I think from Princeton once say that there's a once for all dimension to the gospel and that, you know, we're baptized once that we're justified you know, once for all, Christ pays the penalty once for all. And yet there's an again and again, which comes from revisiting that I'm a forgiven sinner. And any higher and deeper is not some esoteric growth beyond that level, but it's just the repetition of, mm. uh, yeah. you know, Lord, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. And let may Lord have mercy on us all. And thank you, gentlemen, for helping celebrate the one-year anniversary of the podcast. And can I say, in anticipation, the next time the three of us will be together, will be another special episode, The Mockingbird Guide to Surviving the Holiday Season. Oh, oh yeah. yay. Love good, to do that one day. Good luck on that. Scott, you're the best. Thank you, gentlemen. Doc Shane. Doc Shane, indeed. Thank you to you, our listeners who have made this podcast possible. We look forward to many, many, many more episodes to share with you. Happy Halloween. And may God bless you and give you the grace to do the Monster Mash graciously and gratefully. Darling,